Welcome to the Smart Talk series, a Henry George School of Social Science podcast. The Smart Talk series is a weekly podcast with an array of discussions held with academics, policymakers, practitioners, and other professionals to explore new ideas and theories within the economics field. Today's discussion came from our archives and was recorded in July of 2021. Our talk is hosted by our Director of Education, Ibrahim Adrame, who is joined by our guest, Dr. Raphael Chape. Dr. Chape is a decentralized finance economist and director of R&D and strategy at Devil Network, a cryptocurrency platform. Dr. Chape is also an economic advisor for the Pre-Distribution Initiative, a nonprofit that supports creating investment structures that better distribute wealth with workers and communities. Dr. Chape is also a research fellow with the Open Society Foundation, Dr. Chape earned her bachelor's in law and French law from King's College in London, a master's degree in comparative business law from the University of Pantheon-Sorbonne in Paris, a master's in law from New York University, and her doctorate in economics from the New School for Social Research. Needless to say, she has quite an extensive resume. Dr. Chape's research interests include monetary policy and shadow banking. We were lucky enough to talk to Dr. Chape about quantitative easing, how it impacts inequality, and how recent accumulations of debt could impact the global macroeconomy. We hope you enjoy this talk, and please make sure to check back on our page every week for a brand new episode. Welcome to Snapshot, Rafael. It's a pleasure to be here. So in response to the COVID-induced recession, central banks have cut interest rates and resorted to massive asset purchases, otherwise known as quantitative easing. In your view, how would such policies affect income inequality? Yes, uh, there's a clear causal relationship between monetary and regulatory policy and inequality. Let me just give a brief background on where we are. Um, you know, we've had this long-term decline in interest rates. Um, for a while now, the, the Fed began its practice of uh, reliably and continually cutting the interest rates to, to accommodate shocks in response to the 1987 stock market crash. And it's continued, you know, through the 2008 crisis. Um, the rate kept going down and we're now at effectively zero. And um, that has led the Fed to begin uh, these QE and large, uh, large-scale asset purchases, um, and you know, during this entire time, U.S. income and wealth inequality actually grew worse. So the wealth of the top 10% grew 19% following 2008, and the lower in families, they lost 16% of their pre-existing wealth. So we've seen this happen already. Now, in response to the COVID-19 pandemic, we've had this global stimulus policy response in the range of uh, 12 trillion that was deployed. And you know the goal was to ease financial conditions and preserve access to capital markets and bank fundings and, and prevent liquidity crisis of the type we saw in, in 08. The Fed has uh, intervened with these large scale purchases. So in March, 2020, it started buying and committing to buy a wide range of debt securities, long-term treasuries, but also corporate bonds. And the balance sheet expanded to $7 trillion. Just to give some numbers, in, two, in 2007, we had about $900 billion on the balance sheet. 
in 2015, we had 4.5 trillion and we're now at 7 trillion. And that's about 35% of US GDP. Now, arguably what the Fed has been doing is, is stabilize the money markets and preserve the value of uh, financial assets. And while many people would argue and probably I would agree that these me measures may have been necessary, they also have a range of perverse unexpected effects. You know, we might call them negative externalities. So they have fueled inequality as well as uh, other dangerous trends that we might return to. But in terms of inequality, the, these interventions have dramatically increased the wealth of those who own stock, but the, the stock ownership is highly unequal. So just to throw some numbers, the top 1% owns more than half of US stock. The top 10% of households own 86% of stock. 45% of Americans don't own any stock at all. And this takes into account, you know, retirement for 1Ks, IRAs, et cetera. There's also uh, a, a racial justice component to this. 60% uh, of white families own stock and versus uh, about 30% for black and, and Hispanic families. So the, the low interest rates in QE primarily benefit those who already have some level of wealth. You know, it sends equity and bonuses through the roof. And you can see this, you know, if you study finance, you can see through the valuation models, you know, things like discounted cash flow analysis that you have higher present values when interest rates are low. The gains from the, the wealthy are often reinvested. So it pushes up the asset prices even further. Without QE, some analysts from the, the French bank, uh, SocGen, they found that without QE, the S&P 500 and NASDAQ should be closer to 50% of their value. And it's not just the price of equities, but also housing and other assets that skyrocket and, and be, become unaffordable for those with lower incomes or net worth. Bloomberg has noted that despite the current low interest rate environment, uh, US home buyers face the worst, quote, the worst affordability squeeze in 12 years. And this becomes even more problematic when private equity investors, amongst others, begin to invest in, in assets such as housing. So to, to conclude here, one last thing on this very low interest rate environment, it's mostly big corporations taking advantage of these record low interest rates. In June, 2020, uh, Amazon had borrowed 10 billion in bonds with a record interest rate of 0.4% on the lowest tranche. And then the other side of the coin is, for average people, average households, they earn very little on their savings in the bank. Um, I found one study, there has been a loss of 2.4 trillion in savings due to these low interest rates from 08 through uh, 2017. Uh, the wealthier investors have access typically to better returns through more sophisticated investments. Great. And we also know that one of the consequences of easy monetary policy with low interest rate is the debt issue, right? So asset prices going up, the stock market almost reaching unprecedented levels. So are there reasons to worry that this might undermine the long-term stability of the financial system? Yes, it's a, it's a very good question. Um, what the Fed has been doing arguably is, is stabilize money markets, but at the cost of increasing the risk of a future financial crisis. So at the cost of uh, adding to financial instability. Um, these Fed bailouts arguably are creating vicious cycles. 
in which risk grows higher and markets become more reliant on future bailouts. So why is there an increase in risk in the system? Well, these low borrowing costs, they've incentivized companies to take on more debt at a time when the corporate sector was already highly leveraged. So there's more debt and this debt is also not properly priced. So the, the Fed backstop creates a misalignment between yields and credit risk. It's almost like this kind of insurance, if you like. And so this has enabled companies to really flood the market with newly issued debt priced well below its true risk level. So for instance, in the US, companies borrowed 2.5 trillion in the bond market in 2020. Uh, and you know this has driven leverage to an all-time peak. So for the time being, the answer to weak capital structures seems to be more, more leverage, right? Uh, which avoids losses, but this may be just postponing and magnifying larger problems down the road rather than truly resolving uh, corporate financial distress. On average, the company's ability to pay for this increased leverage has actually declined. So if you look at uh, credit ratings, you'll see some downgrade. Uh, there's also been an increase in the number of so-called zombie companies. Um, you know, they're neither dead nor alive. Um, and these are companies uh, with just a very high interest uh, burden. So all of this can quickly translate into liquidity crises and forced selling and uh, increases risk of losses across uh, markets. So the ability to rely on increased leverage ultimately is constrained, right, by firm assets. It may not be continually available. Another risk factor is that both equities and debt securities are responding to the same primary driver, the, the liquidity that's created through QE. So the, the market valuations are increasingly driven by the same macroeconomic factors, uh, things like credit spreads, the strength of the dollar, et cetera. And so as a result, asset classes are more correlated than ever. Um, in, in, in June 2020, JP Morgan uh, warned that market correlations were at a 20-year high. Uh, and and, and that, that also creates uh, systemic risk. And then finally, just to conclude on this point, right, just to point out that, that economic inequality um, is contributing to dynamics of secular stagnation, right? So the economy isn't growing as much as it should be. And um, unless this is addressed, right, we're looking at potential macroeconomic instability down the line. So inequality is, is really systemic risk. So uh, would it be an accurate statement then to say that monetary policy has reached its limits? And do you foresee a viable path to normalization? This is a very good question and a difficult question. How to undo some of this? I mean, eventually the idea is for the central banks and for the, the Fed to start shrinking the balance sheet. But if 2008 serves as a guide, this, this may actually take some time. Um, one of the concern here is, you know, the, the size of this balance sheet now, um, the Fed's portfolio now, um, I found some statistics, uh, is virtually half of the banking system in its, in its entirety, and about half of U.S. total economic output before the crash. So the, the Fed is becoming 
uh, enormous, right? Um, relative to the to the size of the financial sector. Now, what what has Fed said? It, it said that it would start to raise interest rates, um, which it it needs to do. Uh, if the economy is at full employment and if inflation is at uh, 2% and is on track to exceed um, to exceed this level. And you know, thus far, this hasn't yet been the case, at least in, in, in terms of full employment, the goal hasn't been met, right? But investors, um, there's fears of, inf of inflation and there's been some volatility in the markets. And so now what the Fed has done is just recently uh, this week, it, it has announced that it expects to start raising interest rates earlier than previously forecast, uh, as soon as, uh, as early as 2023. And you know, that sent bonds uh, downwards. Um, so this process of um, reducing the size of the Fed balance sheet and starting to increase interest rates again, uh, which is known as, as tapering, right, has really just begun, but the markets are responding with a lot of volatility. Um, so this is, uh, this is going to be a challenging process of how to get an orderly rise in interest rates, right, without really destabilizing the, the economy. And, you know, a difficulty here is that the economy may have been Become, may have become so leveraged that the barriers to raising interest rates are actually quite high. It's, you know, this may be described as a debt trap, uh, right? Like there's so many borrowers with significant debt burdens that as soon as you increase the rates, you increase the cost of servicing the debt until you could precipitate a solvency crisis. So communication is going to be key, right? The markets are very sensitive to any Fed announcement. Just recently, Powell, said at the, at the press conference that the process of, of winding down the asset purchase program uh, and you know, would be orderly, methodical, and transparent, uh, and that things would be communicated well in advance. So there's still this commitment to transparency, but many, uh, many people here believe that this is going to be a tricky process and the Fed is going to have to be smart about how it does this. Thank you, Rafael. It was a pleasure speaking with you. My uh, pleasure. Great. And have a great summer break. And I look forward Thank to you. continuing this conversation with you later. Thank you so much. Have a great yeah. summer too. Bye. Thank you. And that's it for this week's episode of Smart Talk. Thank you for listening, and we hope it made you think. If you'd like to learn more about our research, check out hgsss.org. That's hgsss.org. If you'd like to listen to our content as soon as it's published, subscribe to our show. If you like our show, please leave us a rating, review, or even share it with a friend. It goes a long way. Thanks again for listening, and see you next week.